Hallelujah. At Calvary, and that uh, says it all. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me. Uh, no surprises to Acts chapter 2, and you might be thinking, well, um, the rapture could take place by the time we get past Acts chapter 2, but it's important that we uh, study these uh, words together and that we just thank God for his uh, goodness to us. So I'm going to read, if I may, and we start off with verse 1, which says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Whatever could this mean? And that's the question, I guess, that we want to look at. Uh, uh, we started last week and we'll continue to look at um, during the course of the next few weeks. But we do have a break in between because Charles is coming next week. The following week we have a baptismal service. What an exciting church this is. Who'd want to, uh, to not come along and be involved in all of these things? But last week we began to talk about the subject of speaking in tongues or tongues as it is uh, shown here. And of course, we made the comparison of the gift of tongues that was brought at Babel or Babylon that we see recorded in Genesis chapter 11. And, uh, and of course, we compare that with the tongues that is spoken of here in, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that we have just read together. So there in Genesis chapter 11, the gift of tongues brought problems, brought difficulties, essentially it was a curse, in a sense, to the people uh, that were trying to build this tower, that were trying to reach up to the heavens, to reach up to God. The gift of tongues brought confusion to the people, and the gift of tongues stopped the building of the tower. But in Jerusalem, on the 25th of May, in AD 33, before 9 a.m. in the morning, and I've often thought, you know, some of us would struggle to have been up in time, wouldn't we? But it's important that uh, we know that uh, there's a time and a place for everything. Before nine in the morning, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the apostles. And all those other believers, of course, there was about 120 of them in total that we're told. Uh, and this first manifestation in acts of the Holy Spirit, because we were able to read last week that um, uh, speaking in tongues, the gift of tongues is spoken of at least two other places in Acts and then uh, there in 1 Corinthians 14 and so on. But uh, this was the first example of the gift of tongues. And of course, as we read the scriptures and we've just read them together, we can sense the great encouragement that there was. There was excitement that was taking place. There was something incredible that was happening and it brought great blessing 
People were encouraged. People were blessed by what was taking place. The gift of tongues brought enormous clarity to the people who heard in their own language. What did they hear? What the scriptures tell us? They heard the wonderful works of God. And the gift of tongues brought the building of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Against all the odds, the church is being built. And uh, it continues to be built yet again against all the odds. And the church of Jesus, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ continues to be built. And as a warning, I would say to anybody, never stand in the way of that. Because this is God's work and we don't stand in the way of it. And it'd be amazing the number of people who think that they can do it for God in the way that they want. But we stand back and we recognize and against all the odds the church is being built as Jesus said it would. No one stands in the way and all these odd shaped stones, living stones, breathing stones are brought together. And this wonderful church is being uh, made, being built and being constructed. Babylon, tongues was a curse. Jerusalem, tongues brought blessing beyond measure. And now the issue of speaking in tongues has perhaps what you could be, uh, um, I recognize, do you use the term, it's a hot potato here in Canada? So you, you do, okay, so you, you know what I mean by that one. I'm just checking because uh, in England, everywhere you go, you can buy a hot potato and put different fillings in it and they're lovely and I really miss hot potato stands at the corner of the street and so on. But the sad thing is, is that talking about the gift of tongues has, uh, has almost been a hot potato that you keep wanting to throw along to someone else. Because instead of what we read here in the scriptures, it brings unity. We discover that so often we see division that comes from it. And this, of course, flies in the face of everything that has been said because the work and the person of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost was to bring unity amongst God's people. It was the thing that should have drawn us together or should draw us together and should strengthen us. It's the thing that gives us great encouragement. It's the thing that enables us to be able to do the work of God. To go into the world and to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to proclaim the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But of course, uh, sometimes there are issues within Scripture and when we approach them in different ways, when we come with them from the perspective of a lack of love, a lack of concern for other people, we discover that difficulties and problems take place and there is no need for them. So I hope over these next few weeks, and this morning is a short message because we have got rather a lot to pack into the remaining time that we have, but please, let's bear with us uh, together as we look at this. We're going to look at just one aspect and then we've got many others to look at during the course of the next few weeks. And I thought that today we can just begin to explain some of the background history as to where uh, um, church, uh, churches, denominations stand on these things so particularly during about the last hundred years the gift of tongues has caused innumerable problems in uh, the church of uh, the lord jesus christ uh, there have evidently been incidences of uh, tongues that have been uh, that have been manifested and shown throughout the history of the church we recognize that very clearly but it's really the early part of the 20th century that saw the birth of what uh, is now known as the Pentecostal movement. And I'm going to make this statement. The very best church that there could ever be 
would be a Pentebaptist or a Bapticostal church, okay? Because if we could bring the two sides together, I'm sure we would be really encouraged. We're keen on Bible study. We love to read God's Word. We preach consecutively. We don't miss parts out. It's one of the things that Baptist churches have been known about. Pentecostal churches, they have a lot of other things to add. And if we could somehow bring the two together, I think we would have a very wonderful opportunity here. And maybe in this fellowship, we begin to see um, some of the open hearts to the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us. And so we rejoice in that. Um, and this movement, uh, the Pentecostal movement, carried with it an emphasis on spiritual gifts. Now, it's interesting that sometimes when I talk to people, it's quite evident that when you talk about spiritual gifts, the sort of face goes blank, the jaw drops open fractionally, and there's the impression that people are confused as to what is being spoken of here. And so we need to talk about these things because they are very, very important. Uh, now, the first account in recent history of speaking in tongues um, is recorded of a lady in Scotland in the British Isles at the end of the 19th century. She was part of a church uh, led by a man called Edward Irving. Uh, he became a very popular preacher in Scotland and indeed down into England as well. And he was perhaps what you could call the pre-runner of what became known as Pentecostalism. Uh, the first recorded accounts that I understand took place here in uh, North America was in 1901 when a student at uh, Bethel Bible College in Tepoca, Kansas, began to speak in tongues. And very quickly, many other people began to follow. There was confusion as to what was taking place, uncertainty as to what was taking place, but something happened. And uh, then it discovered that that uh, spread, that experience spread um, from that college, and it moved out into Kansas, moved into the state of Missouri, into Texas as well. And then in 1906 came what was called the Azusa Street Awakening uh, there in Los Angeles. And that Azusa Street event is usually recognized as the beginning of the Pentecostal movement here in North America. These are just rather general terms, I accept. But uh, this is uh, what we see. The, in 1914, the Assemblies of God denomination was formed in the USA. Uh, and that was the first denomination uh, forming, if you like, within the Pentecostal movement. And then in 1917, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada were formed here in this country. And uh, we, we, we see the beginning of, uh, of these particular movements. But at this time, the phenomena of speaking in tongues, the phenomena of, of some of the uh, outworkings of the other gifts of the Spirit were largely confined to the Pentecostal denominations. That's just a general fact. In fact, at one time, it was a requirement of the Pentecostal church that you demonstrated that you could speak in tongues before you would be considered for membership. Now, I'm not sure if that's the same now, but it certainly was in Dave's Gone By. And with the Elam uh, church as well, it was a very, very certain uh, requirement that was placed that you had to demonstrate that you were speaking in tongues before you would be accepted into membership of the church. Now, we're not here to discuss Pentecostalism and the rights and wrongs of what our views are at all. What we are here to do, however, is to look at the Scriptures and to determine and to see what it is that God was doing at that first Pentecost. And then, from that, we begin to apply into the situation, perhaps, that we find ourselves in. So what we need to do is to 
understand the basics of what is going on. Now, about 1960, something very, very strange happened, sort of 1960, 1965, somewhere around that period in time. And what took place then was that what was happening within the Pentecostal church suddenly spills out of Pentecostalism and begins to find itself manifested in a number of other denominational groupings. Now, one of them was the Evangelical Church. The Evangelical Church has been around forever. The word evangel in the New Testament speaks of what we stand for, of what's important to us. I think Anglo-Saxon English replaced uh, evangel with the word gospel. And so there was a time when uh, people in uh, Britain, for example, were known as the gospelers. Not necessarily evangelical, but they were known as the gospelers because they couldn't stop speaking about the gospel. Everywhere they went, they had to make sure that people understood what it was that Jesus Christ had done for us and the responsibility that we have to respond to the gift that has been given to us. And so we discover uh, that uh, all of a sudden something very unusual begins to happen, as I say, around 1960. Now, my parents were in Africa when all this began, and I remember my father saying that when they got off the boat, because that's how you traveled in days gone by at that time, so they came on the MV Oriel, uh, and it went right the way around Northern Ireland and back down into, uh, into Liverpool, and I remember when we arrived, we had all our stuff, which wasn't very much, in a couple of oil drums with lids that had been welded shut. And that was how you traveled in days gone by. And my father, when he arrived back home, found that something had happened in the church that had not happened in Nigeria at that time. Because all of a sudden, people were talking about the charismatic movement. And all of a sudden, people in staid evangelical churches where they knew how to behave and, you know, they sat in nice straight lines, um, suddenly showed something incredibly exciting happening because the Holy Spirit was moving. And I think in countries like, uh, like, like Great Britain, which is considerably further ahead than even here in Canada as to some of the things that have taken place. It was exciting, but my father was concerned because he, he, you know, he'd missed perhaps the earliest visages of this. And so I remember him speaking and, and saying, you know, this is exciting, but what do we do? How do we respond to it? And I think in some respects, his response to that would have been the situation that many people found themselves in at Pentecost. Something's changed, something's going on, and we've got to keep an eye on it as to see what's happening. Now at this point, there might be some of you thinking to yourself, I haven't noticed anything of what you're talking about. Now, that's terribly sad. But let's go a bit further, because as I said, 1960, 65, 1970, things began to change, because the Pentecostal experience, speaking in tongues, gifts of the Spirit, and so on, was spreading outside of the Pentecostal church. And it was spreading uh, into evangelical churches. And interestingly enough, and we touched on this last week, this experience, the charismatic experience, and we'll talk about what this word charismatic means in just a moment, was spreading into sections of the Catholic Church. It was spreading into the Anglican Church, churches which had historically had remained stable for not just a couple of hundred years, but for thousands of years, at least 1,500. And so we discover that something was happening, even in groups like the Seventh-day Adventists. We talked about that last week. They have, to this day, their charismatic wing and other groups as well. But of course, there is controversy that is taking place here because many of these other groups, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, um, we've got to be careful with them because they have issues over 
who Jesus is. They talk about the fact that Jesus became sin, literally. Well, he didn't. Okay? And they talk about the fact for us to maintain our relationship with Jesus, we have to become legalists. And the Bible says don't become a legalist. So we've got to remember that what we see sometimes taking place may not be what we ought uh, to say, you know, is, is, is absolutely from God. We've got to be cautious on some of these things. So the first controversy, if you like, concerns the legitimacy of the gift of tongues. And uh, this is now where we begin to run into trouble. Okay, because uh, there are streams within the church that uh, have very, very differing views and opinions. So you've got one stream which will talk about the fact that um, we live in what's called the post-apostolic age. Uh, that simply means that the gifts of the Spirit were for the, 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 the apostles, the age of the apostles, the beginning of the church. And so that now means that there's a line that has been drawn, and when the last apostle died, that was it. And so these gifts have been retained in that side of the line. And then, of course, there are the others that will say, no, that's not uh, the case, and that we see the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit today. So <clears throat> it is fair to say that the general view of the evangelical church was, uh, um, uh, was cessationist up until somewhere around the 1970s, 1960s, 1970s. Um, so that was certainly the majority view at that time. But that's changed. Because the Holy Spirit is working in people's lives. And we now see that the majority view of evangelicals is, is the opposite. And that there is an acceptance of the charismatic movement that has come in. So what does the charismatic movement really mean? Now, you know, we, we could have a whole time just talking about this one word alone. Charisma is the Greek word for gifted. So the charismatic movement simply is a reference to the gifts that take place in people's lives. And so we've gone from a situation where, uh, the, the, because at the, end, at the end of the day, we've got to recognize that the charismatic movement is the biggest single movement that is growing amongst churches around the whole world today. So we can't exclude uh, what is being spoken of and, and, and what is taking place. And we need to start asking very sensible questions as to what is going on and what does this mean for us. But the, uh, the evangelical church, as I say, had uh, seen this big change that has taken place. It was gradual at first, and then suddenly it has, uh, it has changed. And we see that the majority of those people who would call themselves evangelical um, of which I am one of them. I might put the word conservative in front, but I am still an evangelical. It's something which is very important to me. So other churches, uh, and one of the biggest groupings that we would find that hold to what's called a post-apostolic uh, doctrinal position would be the Reformed Church. So as far as they're concerned, they would not see the gifts of the Spirit um, as shown in Pentecost and the beginning, well, the book of Acts, they wouldn't see that as being applicable for today and, uh, and so on. And they are uh, one of the few churches that take that view and that opinion um, uh, in its entirety. The Mennonite church is interesting because it's, uh, it's got many shades, many colors, and uh, you will meet people within the, uh, the Mennonite church who would take and hold to that view, but others who would be very much 
as, uh, as I would be in terms of evangelicalism. So we see that. So um, here we are in the 21st century. It was a minority view, but now that's changed. So the, the issue that the first controversy that we need to talk about, and we'll be doing this, as I say, over the next few weeks, is, is this applicable for us today? Now, in my saying that, there might be some people that you know, are concerned because we can be very, very strong in our views and opinions on these things. And one thing that I would stress and encourage all of us to do is to actually hear what God is saying through the Holy Spirit to us. Um, we move on. Is tongues allowed today? That's the first question. And then secondly, if it is allowed today, what place does it have in the church? If the gifts of the Holy Spirit are allowed today, what place do they have in the church? And remember who we're talking about in terms of the church. The church is us. We are the church. It's not a bit of canvas. It's not a load of bricks and mortar. Then we can go on and we can talk about the fact, is it the initial evidence of either receiving the Holy Spirit into our lives, or as the scriptures talk about here, being baptized with the Holy Spirit, or the first experience of the fullness of the Holy Spirit? These are the questions that we need to ask, because of course there are very many differing opinions that take place on this. Now classically, the Pentecostal movement has seen the gift of tongues as being the initial evidence of baptism with the Holy Spirit. So uh, that's the place that, uh, that they would start. Is it an initial evidence of the Holy Spirit, or is it a gift and not an evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Can you be filled with the Holy Spirit without having the gift of tongues, and so on? These are the questions that we need to, uh, to look at and talk together. Now, as I said, I suspect that deep down all these different opinions are held here in this fellowship. And here's the thing that has encouraged me so much, and I pray that it continues, is that somehow, as a fellowship, we remain united together. Truthfully, I can't quite understand it, apart from the fact it is the Holy Spirit that enables us to do this. And that speaks volumes about us as individuals as God works in us. Because it means that we are being held together, we're being focused on the important things, which is indeed the, pros uh, the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we can't do that without the Holy Spirit. People try, and it ends in abject failure. So what we're doing, we're doing because the Holy Spirit is with us. And he is leading us, and he is guiding us, and he is living within us, and he is living out his life, the life of Jesus, within us. So we see uh, that there is something exciting that has happened and is continuing to happen here. Um, there are some people, of course, that even now as we're talking, you're thinking to yourself, I really have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. Because it's maybe even the first time you've heard the term, the gifts of the Spirit. It may be the first time you've even heard that there is a gift in speaking in tongues. 
And what's all that about? And yet there are some people within our fellowship who speak regularly in tongues. And I've spoken to them, and it's been a joy to be encouraged by them. And so you can begin to see how confusing this can be. So if you're in that category, and you're in the category of saying to yourself, well, I've got absolutely no idea what you're talking about, it's in the Bible. Now, if it's in the Bible, it means we have to listen to it, we have to read it, we have to understand it. We do not take sections of Scripture and cross it out and move on and uh, as though it hasn't been there, because that's not what uh, God would have us to do. He's given us his word. It's a complete word. It's a complete message. It's here in the scriptures. Now, that is the background introduction. Our task primarily is to expound what Acts chapter 2 is talking about and what it means, what its meaning is, what its significance is in the setting that we have it here in Acts chapter 2. And it's important that we look at that. So I want us to look at the gift of tongues in two ways. The first this morning and then the next one in about three weeks' time as, uh, as we look at, uh, at that. So first of all, what is, is, it, is its historical setting? We need to understand this first. And then secondly, what is its contemporary significance? Which, as I say, we'll look in a few weeks' time. So we begin this morning by briefly considering the historical setting because it is really, really important that we understand this and that we seek to understand exactly what is happening here in Acts chapter 2. And I want to break it down into three areas uh, and I think that may be helpful to us, but we are only going to be able to cover the first one this morning. So, as I said, it's going to take us time to do that. So what we're going to do is to look at the content uh, uh, um, sorry, the context of the gift that we have here recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, the context in which the gift was given, and then we'll look at the content of the gift, what exactly was being spoken in tongues, and we will touch on that briefly. And then thirdly, what are the consequences of uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the gift that we see that is being shown here? What is the consequences from that gift? And what is its impact on us, what are the results of it in our lives? So, firstly, we talk about the context of the gift. As always, when it comes to scripture, it's important to know the setting. It's important to know who is being spoken to. Is it believers that are being spoken to? Is it unbelievers that are being spoken to? So it's really important that when we read Scripture, we don't just take a verse out of context because we can get the Scriptures to say absolutely anything we want them to if we take one a verse or a part of a verse and then we begin to build doctrines on what it is that we want to be able to be presented so the setting is important uh, we've discussed this previously we cannot separate the jewish feasts uh, from all that is happening in the church and we recognize that dates are important in scripture we should never think for one moment that Scripture is just something that is haphazard, that is happening. And we've spoken, if uh, you can remember back in the barn, from Leviticus chapter 23, and we looked at the different gifts and we've realized, sorry, the different feasts, and we realized that there are important uh, sections within our Christian lives, within the Church of Jesus Christ, that are related very much to uh, those feasts that had taken place. And of course, one of them is presented to us here because the date was set it was Pentecost, and there were some very important reasons why God chose this date in the Jewish calendar for the Holy Spirit to be poured out as he had done so. In verse 5, we read that there were God-fearing Jews from every nation under the sun. So the setting is obviously important. Now, it is fair to say that there were no Canadians there. 
it's fair to say that there were unlikely to be any Japanese people present. <laughs> there were no British people there either. <laughs> okay, uh, thanks for the reminder of that. But when the scriptures talk about every nation, it's talking about every nation in the world uh, that was known at that time and that we see very clearly, which would have included uh, the areas around the, um, uh, the Mediterranean and through into the Middle East, down to the Red Sea and all that area going further over and so on. It was the known world that was being spoken of. And uh, the interesting thing, of course, is that the date was important because there were Jewish people that were spread all over the uh, known world. The diaspora of the Jewish people had taken place or had started already and there were Jewish people in each of these areas that were spoken of. Did you know that in 2021 there was a 41% increase in the number of Jewish people returning to Israel from all over the world? But when you look at the breakdown of the places they came from, something's changing. 5,000 came from the USA, 3,000 from France, a couple of thousand from the United Kingdom. You know, before it was other countries in Eastern Europe and places. Something is happening again, and we shouldn't miss these things. We need to be aware that there is a drawing to Israel again of people from all over the world. Russia has put the brakes on. They won't allow any Jews out anymore. And yet there used to be 10,000, 15,000 every year coming from Russia. Now they're stopped. The Ukraine has stopped them coming as well. And so there's something strange that is going on. Britain has just recognized or is prepared to uh, recognize uh, the moving of its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And for those of us that are, have an interest in biblical, uh, in Bible prophecy, we know these things are important. Yep, they're quiet. They slip under the radar. Many people don't notice them. But all the time, God's prophetic clock is ticking. And it's now ticking faster. It's one of those strange clocks that ticks faster and faster and faster. And soon it'll be ticking so fast, we just won't be able to keep up with it. And that's what's happening already. We're seeing changes that are taking place. And the question is, are we ready? Are we prepared? Are we prepared for what is, uh, what is taking place? Uh, Pentecost was thanksgiving for the beginning of the harvest. And while uh, they were there in Jerusalem, these 120 men and women uh, who were meeting, they probably were meeting in a room in the temple uh, somewhere, suddenly at the beginning of the day, because we know it was 9 a.m. when Peter got up and started to explain to the crowd what was going on. So in the morning of that day, it says all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, what did the Spirit enable them to speak? Well, verse 11 tells us, and we'll talk more about this next time. But we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. So we know what's taking place. We know what is being spoken. The wonders of God are being proclaimed. Verse 11 says, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. So the people who are there suddenly begin to speak the Galileans, you know, they, we're not talking about some, some sort of like bunch of really intelligent people from some big university city somewhere where everyone's got degrees and, you know, they all talk about which school they went to and things like this. No, 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 we're talking about Galileans who got involved in fishing and things like that. Suddenly, these people are speaking and declaring the wonders of God. So there is a real, there's a real wonderful thing that's taking place here. 
It's not mysterious in the sense that we don't know what's happening. We know very well what's happening. We know what is being spoken of. We know what is being said. We also know uh, who it is that's doing the speaking. But the thing that's taking place is absolutely supernatural. Totally. This is God at work completely. There is nothing human about it at all. I'm going to talk about uh, that particular point again a little bit later. But Luke, uh, as he writes here, lists 17 nationalities here in chapter 2, if we include Galileans, which most of the speakers were. But we are told of 17 specific nationalities, and they say, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. So they know there's something strange going on, because they don't have to think about it. They hear these men speaking to them in languages that they could not have known. So it is absolutely supernatural that's taking place. God, through the Holy Spirit, has done something to these people. And they can be understood in different languages. We discover that they'd never learned these languages, but they were able to speak them. There were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans from the island of Crete, Arabs, and they hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own language. We hear them speaking our mother tongue because it says where they were born. So it was their mother tongue that they heard. And we hear them in our mother tongue declaring the wonders of God. Now, the next few moments might come as a bit of a surprise to you. But you know what? The gift of tongues here at Pentecost didn't need to happen. Okay, It didn't need to happen. What do I mean by that? Well, the reality is, is that the majority of the people that are gathered together here from all these places, from the, di the Jewish diaspora that has taken place, all of them would have been able to speak Greek. Because Greek was the language that was the trade language. It was the language of communication. It was the way that people were able to talk to each other. And that was the legacy of Alexander the Great in the 4th century when he conquered the world. He imposed Greek as the international language for politics, commerce, and general communication. The reality is, is that they could have understood what was being spoken of in Greek. So God didn't need to work this miracle out in the lives of that 120 people. So why did he do it? He didn't need to. And of course, if we think about it a bit further, it wasn't only Greek that these people could speak. They were also Jewish. And when they met, when they met in the synagogues, when they met in their Jewish communities, they would have spoken Hebrew. They would have known Hebrew. They could have spoken to each other. They could have heard what Peter had to say uh, very clearly, what the others had to say. So the gift of tongues on the face of it wasn't actually needed. So why in the world did God allow this to take place or, uh, or let it happen? And then, of course, we could look at the fact that many of them would have been from Jerusalem. They would have known Aramaic. So there was at least three languages that they would have all have been able to speak. And we see this in just a moment when Peter stands up to address the crowd. And he does so in one language. Presumably Aramaic. 
And everybody hears and understands when he talks to them about what they did to Jesus. And the fact that their actions put Jesus... They murdered him. And Peter explains that. And then they cry out to Peter and say, well, what do we do about it? And so he says, repent. Repent of your sin. Be baptized. And they all understood. And what did they do? They repented of their sin and they were baptized. They understood clearly what was being spoken of. So we come back and we ask ourselves the question, why? Why was it necessary? Why was it that the Parthians had to hear the wonders of God being spoken Parthian or whatever the language that Parthians speak is? Medes in Median? I don't know. Mesopotamians in Mesopotamiam? But they had to. So we have to conclude that something very significant is clearly going on here. There was no need for these languages to be heard, but they are heard. Something is going on. It's not obvious at first. So I close by explaining what I believe is taking place here. This gift of the Holy Spirit marks the birth of the church. And it marks the birth of the church in a very, very significant way. In fact, what more of a significant way could you ever have marked it than everybody heard the wonders of God in their mother tongue? And I believe that that's what's taking place here. Now, we've already reminded ourselves of other occasions uh, and the other occasion in the Old Testament when God had given the gift of tongues to the people at Babel. And you see at Babel, the people tried to climb up to God or they tried to make a, a platform and they were hoping with all their hearts that the gods that they wanted to come down would see the efforts that they'd put in and they would come down, whether it was a god or a goddess or whatever it was. They might sacrifice something on the top. It could even be their own children, but they would do something to try and attract the attention of God. So that was what was taking place. The people were trying to climb up to God. It was all about human effort. It was all about a human event that was taking place. And God cursed them with the gift of tongues, which led to their fragmentation and to their separation around the world. But at Pentecost, God came down to the people. He reached down. Not only did he just come and hover above them as a dove or something, he reached into their hearts and he said, that's where I'm coming. And he lived within their hearts and he changed them and he transformed them. It was a divine event. And he blessed them with the gift of tongues in such a way that it united the divisions that had been created by Babylon. Babylon had created these divisions and Pentecost takes them away. At Babel, tongues was a curse. At Pentecost, tongues were a blessing. At Babel, tongues divided. At Pentecost, tongues united. You see, Pentecost reverses Babel in symbolism, but not just symbolism. In significance, but not just significance. In actuality as well. And that is what makes Pentecost and tongues so exciting for us. You see, in this one, and we see here the feature of the gospel. The gospel reverses the curses of Genesis. In Genesis, Adam and Eve became separated from God, as Paul describes it, separated from the life of God at Pentecost. 
as we have been talking about for the last few weeks, now they're brought into union with God. The most significant thing about the day of Pentecost was that these disciples were brought into union with Christ. They'd been his friends up until then, and now they come into union with him. They have seen him go back into heaven, but now Jesus comes and lives in each of them through the Holy Spirit. In Genesis, they became spiritually dead. That was the sentence that God imposed on them. But at Pentecost, they became spiritually alive. In Genesis, they were divided, but at Pentecost, they're united again. And that's why Paul says in verse 12, by one spirit... You are baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free. We're all given the one spirit to drink. It's the same Holy Spirit in each of us. Now he says to these Jews and Greeks, he says, that's what Babel did. It separated you from peoples and groupings. And now he says, by being baptized by the Holy Spirit, into Christ, you're being united again. Galatians 3.28, Paul writes and he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Did you know that the alphabet people use that verse to justify the lifestyle that they stand? Neither male nor female. We can never take God's word out of context. That is not what is being spoken of here at all you are all one in christ ephesians 2 13 when paul speaks about the gentiles who are far off and out in the cold as far as the purposes of god as he had revealed through them through the old testament was concerned but now he says in christ you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of jesus christ for he himself is our peace he has made the two one and we rejoice in what is taking place you know it's a wonderful thing to look around a church like ours and we've got people who speak all sorts of strange languages here um, some speak double dutch <laughs> some speak english <laughs> some speak canadian we've got ukrainian i, I don't know if, if max is here it's good to see max at our, yeah max can speak ukrainian and probably russian and a whole load of other things. And I know we've got uh, German people here, and we've got people that can speak high German and low German, a whole variety of German. It's incredible. And yet, it's the Holy Spirit that brings us all together, makes us one in Him, and we're able to achieve what could not be achieved before Pentecost because of that unity that has brought us together. So I'd suggest to you that in the first instance, the first context of the giving of the gift, the gift of tongues, is that it was a sign of this new unity that God is giving again to people. People who have been previously divided. But that's the context for the gift. All these national groups represented here in Jerusalem. And God spoke to each of them in their own tongue the wonders of God and we rejoice in that so in two weeks time we're going to talk about the content of the gifts and uh, and what they were speaking what was being spoken and then we consider the consequence of the